Good morning. My question to you is how does the president exercise the war power constitutionally? You have different models to pick from. For some reason, the Supreme Court tells us frequently that this is a government of enumerated powers. It's really not a government of enumerated powers. We don't try to enumerate everything. What we have is a government of expressed powers. You can read them in the Constitution. But we also have a government of implied powers. If you, if you can reasonably draw a power from an expressed power, uh, that's part of our Constitution. So if Congress has the expressed power to legislate, it has implied power to uh, issue subpoenas, to do part of its uh, investigation. The president has implied powers to remove the heads of executive departments, etc. So we have expressed powers and we have implied powers. And the part I want to talk about uh, George W. Bush is his effort to use something called inherent powers. I'll give you some background on that. Uh, there's also the concept of emergency power. We've only seen it used in a big way, successfully, I say, one time. And that was in the Civil War, where President Lincoln took certain emergency actions, um, uh, drew money, withdrew money from the Treasury without an appropriation, he called out the militia, he put a blockade on the South, uh, suspended the writ of habeas corpus, etc. The part about Lincoln that preserved the Constitution was he never claimed he had constitutional authority to do what he did. In fact, he said to Congress, uh, he, he reported to Congress on what he did, he said whether my actions are strictly legal or not. He gave it away right there, whether strictly legal or not. He also said, I don't think what I did goes beyond the powers given to Congress in Article One. so he gave it away there. Namely, he was exercising what he thought he had under Article Two, plus what Congress has under Article One. And the only way to preserve the Constitution was to <clears throat> be accountable to Congress, uh, explain what he did, why he did it, and uh, uh, depend on Congress either sanctioning him or authorizing retroactively what he did, and Congress did the latter. And when Congress debated his request, it was done with the understanding <laughs> that he did not have authority to do what he did and needed statutory authority. <laughs> That moves us now into inherent power. Uh, I invite all of you to look at the dictionary, what inherent means. It has something to do with something intrinsic to something or something in the nature of something. Um, obviously, there's no way to understand what inherent is. So anyone who tells you I have the inherent power to do something, you should be on guard. <laughs> um, examples, Bush is not the first one, uh, Truman, uh, 1952, he seized steel mills. He claimed in court, the Justice Department, that he had inherent power to do that. He did not need statutory authority claimed. He claimed in court, which is not a great argument, that the judges could not control the president, that the president was subject to only two checks, that's the ballot box plus impeachment. The judge didn't like that argument. Um, very peppery uh, decision rejecting inherent power and the Supreme Court in the Youngstown case uh, upheld the district court. In the Nixon years, um, uh, President Nixon claimed he had inherent authority to do domestic surveillance, particularly for anyone who didn't like the Vietnam War and complained about it, you could do domestic surveillance. Back down in the courts, in the district court, in the Sixth Circuit, in the Supreme Court, in the Keith case, that was held 
not to exist as a plot as the power of the president. Uh, Nixon also claimed that he had inherent authority not to spend appropriated money. It didn't matter what Congress wanted to spend. It didn't matter that he signed it into law that he could do what he felt like in terms of expending money. He could cut it in half. He could, he could zero it out. Um, and uh, there are about 80 court cases on that. And uh, administration lost about uh, 78 of them, including the one that went to the Supreme Court. And that's when I came to Congress at that time. This is early 70s, and I worked with Congress on legislation. In 1974, Congress passed legislation placing constraints on what presidents can do with empowerment, statutory constraints. Takes us up to George W. Bush. Um, after 9-11, he issued a military order um, authorizing the creation of military tribunals, claiming he had inherent power to do that. Uh, it's a long story. I ended up writing three amicus briefs uh, on the case that went to the Supreme Court, the Hamdan case, decided in 2006. And one of the things I pointed out is that the Justice Department claimed the president has inherent authority to do this because of the John Andre uh, Tribunal in 1780. This was the British trial, British spy uh, with Benedict Arnold. I don't know how good your history is, but 1780, you're not going to get much presidential power out of 1780. <laughs> you're not going to get any executive power out of 1780 because there's just the one branch, the Continental Congress. So that was struck didn't down. didn't even have the Constitution. Man. didn't even have a Constitution. Um, but we did have uh, the, the John Entre trial was tried pursuant to statute to uh, Articles of War passed by the Continental Congress. So it always had a legislative base, not a presidential base. Uh, NSA, NSA surveillance after the New York Times wrote the story uh, that the administration secretly had been conducting uh, surveillance uh, in violation of the FISA Act of 1978. The administration offered two arguments. Uh, one was inherent authority that president has this under Article 2, but they also argue that the president has it by statute, namely after 9-11, Congress passed the authorization for use of military force, and they claim somewhere it was in there. But you don't, you don't have a, a freestanding statute, Pfizer, which is the exclusive means for national security surveillance, and have it somehow amended or something by implication by another statute. You, you can't do that. Uh, another argument I won't go into much, but um, uh, the Justice Department defended inherent power for the president uh, on NSA surveillance under the, quote, sole organ doctrine. Um, it's a 1936 decision, Curtis Wright, that is totally taken out of context what John Marshall said back in 1800. I won't go into it. I've written on it. It has an interest. Uh, they can email me. I'll send it to you. Uh, last two points, uh, secret legal memos under this administration. Um, this year, in March 2008, the administration released a memo that John Yu had written in March 2003. Five years later, they release it. It's about 80 pages or something. You read through it, and it's legal reasoning. There's nothing in there that you can see that's sensitive or classified or anything of the kind. Uh, and if there were anything sensitive, somebody's name or something like that, a source or method or something, then blacken it out and let the memo go out for the legal reasoning. Otherwise, you have an administration operating on the basis of secret legal memos, only those with 
access to it would know what it was. And you can't even have the administration operating legally in the face of documents that are withheld from policymakers. My last point, um, state secrets privilege. Uh, this is a, something that when someone goes to court, private parties go to court to challenge uh, what they feel are illegal and unconstitutional actions by the president or by the administration. The administration in court will say that we invoke the state secrets privilege, which means that this case cannot move forward at all. You cannot get any access to any documents. You cannot pursue this anymore because to do so would risk the disclosure of information damaging to national security. So you stop it in its tracks. And that means that, a, that an administration, this one or anyone, could act illegally and unconstitutionally and there's no way in court you could ever uh, mount an effective challenge. Um, I wrote a book two years ago on that case, uh, United States against Reynolds, 1953. And it was a, it was a case where uh, B-29 exploded over Georgia. Uh, uh, widows of the civilian engineers on board sued to see if there had been negligence by the government. And in district court, uh, the right thing was done. Uh, the women wanted the official accident report, and the judge said, you either give me the accident report to read in my chambers, or you lose the case. And the government wouldn't give it up, and the government lost. And the Third Circuit in Philadelphia said the same thing. You either give it to the trial judge in chambers to look at it, or you lose. The government didn't do it, and the government lost. And it goes to the Supreme Court in 1953 in the Reynolds case, and the Supreme Court, without ever looking at the accident report, accepted the word of the administration that it had state secrets in it. Well, in the 1990s, that accident report was declassified and released, and you can read it. There are no state secrets in it. So the Supreme Court was misled. In 1953, announced the doctrine, which is still there today, the state secrets privilege. <clears throat> Just to finish up the story, the three widows uh, went back to court. Um, about five, six years ago, and uh, they lost at every level. And um, the Third Circuit, with Samuel Alito, part of the panel, said that we, we recognize there are no state secrets in the accident report. And we recognize also that the state, that the, docu the document uh, has evidence of negligence by the government. Um, but there are three things in there that are, quote, sensitive. And the three things were uh, the plane carrying classified information has to fly at 20,000 feet. Well, I looked at newspapers the day after the crash. In all the newspapers said the plane is flying at 20,000 feet. So that's not exactly a, a sensitive information. Uh, said also that it's the 3,150th Electronics Battalion. Again, if that's as sensitive as something, you can blacken that out. The women were not interested in that. They were looking for negligence. And the last thing, which was sensitive to the Third Circuit, was that the uh, plane carrying this information, this classified uh, uh, equipment, uh, the plane has to be a bomber. Well, that's why we call it a B-29. <laughs> I'll stop. Thanks.